Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this is episode 29. My guest a little later on today's episode is a phenomenal singer, songwriter, guitar player. She's got a new album on the way, and she's really making a name for herself lately. Madison Cunningham will be my guest today. This was a really interesting interview. She's got a great story. She's got all the potential in the world, and she just played Madison Square Garden with Harry Styles. So we got into talking about that and a million other interesting things. So stick around for that. I want to say a quick word about my sponsors this season before we get rolling. I have some really awesome sponsors, great brands that I'm very excited to have partnered up with. The first of those is ArtistWorks. ArtistWorks is your go-to for online music learning. They have an amazing roster of world-class musicians who are the teachers, and these musicians cover an extremely wide array of instruments and genres. And when you're a student at ArtistWorks, you communicate directly with these phenomenal teachers through their video exchange program, which is such a great idea and such a great way to learn music. You're sending in videos of yourself, playing tunes, working things out, whatever it is you're working on, and they check those videos out, critique them, and send you a tailor-made video in return. So this is not only an opportunity to learn from world-class musicians who are also world-class teachers, but it's also a way to target what you have going on specifically with your music. And it's really a phenomenal resource. I've heard nothing but great things, and I know a bunch of the teachers on there, and can't recommend it highly enough. Check it out at artistworks.com. My other sponsor this season is Orvis. I love this brand. I've been a fan of Orvis 
from long before I got to know the great folks that work there, but I have had a chance to get to know them in recent years, and it's only deepened my appreciation for this brand. Really high-quality products, of course, everything that you could ever need for fly fishing, but they also make all kinds of really great apparel for the outdoors, high-quality, durable. So much of it is made in the USA. They have great products, but they also have a great mission and they've done so much meaningful quality work in the field of conservation and that is so incredibly timely right now so incredibly important if you're someone who gets outside in any capacity you really need to think about how you can give back how you can help preserve the natural world and orvis is really walking the walk in this area and for me as a consumer when i think about the brands that i want to support these are really important aspects of what those brands are all about. So big thanks to Orvis for everything that they're doing in that area. Big thanks to them for supporting the podcast this season. And thanks for the phenomenal gear. I was recently out with my Helios 8 weight trying to catch a carp here in downtown Denver, which I can tell you now from personal experience is not a very easy thing to do. But it definitely wasn't the rod's fault. Those Helios rods are excellent. Make sure you check out Orvis for all your outdoor needs. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is behind all kinds of great podcast content. Check them out. And we are also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters record label. And there are all kinds of really cool, really quality releases coming from Americana Vibes. So stay tuned. Some of you may have realized I took a few weeks off from my regular release schedule here at Inside the Musician's Brain because the String Dusters schedule has been very busy of late. But not only did we have a full slate of big shows, including our headline debut at Red Rocks here in Denver, but we were also down a man. So Andy Falco, our amazing guitar player, just had a baby. Congrats, Andy, Jasmine, and Violet. And their new son, Teddy, came into the world a few weeks ago. And Andy had to be home taking care of the family for a little bit longer than expected. And, of course, we had his back, as we always do, because these things happen. That's life. And we needed to figure out how to adjust and roll on and keep the music going. We've we've missed enough shows in the last few years. But for a band like the String Dusters, you know, 15 years deep with the same five people and the synergy of the group along with all the shared musical experience and the repertoire like those are our things and so finding someone to fill in for one of the band members is wow at first a very daunting task i remember when i got the news and then thinking about these huge shows red rocks as i said it was it was definitely daunting and you're thinking to yourself how can we replace someone in this band everyone is so essential in so many ways because of all that shared experience. And we brought in our brother and incredible guitar player, John Stickley. And I want to just take a moment to say huge props to Stickley for stepping up to the plate and doing such an amazing job for these shows while Falco was out. And Stickley was a guest here on Inside the Musician's Brain. Actually, he's very early on. He was in episode four in season one. And always been a great friend, one of our favorite guitar players. Be sure to check out his amazing band, by the way, the John Stickley Trio. Such an incredible, unique sound, 
phenomenal players, drums, fiddle, and guitar, some great albums, lots of original music. Check them out. And yeah, Stick was definitely at the top of our list of players when we knew we were going to have to fill some very big shoes. We knew he would be a great fit, and we reached out. We got in touch. We made sure that he was available. We started to get travel stuff dialed in, and then it was on to the real work, the music. And I got questions from friends and family just about how this process works, so I figured I'd break it down really quick because when I did explain even bits and pieces of it to people, it's definitely one of those things that if you're not a full-time musician, you know, knowing how a process like this unfolds can be a little bit of a mystery. So I sent Stickley a Spotify playlist, get this, it was about six hours long, 60 songs, kind of prioritized with the new album stuff, which of course we're trying to feature at most of our shows these days. The new album stuff came first, and then it was on to, you know, the strong live string duster songs that we regularly use in concert. But we had a lot of sets to cover. So we we had six sets at B Chord in Virginia. Then we had Red Rocks. Then we had a weekend of festival sets. And of course, we don't really repeat a lot of songs. We get a lot of repeat customers, and we are always trying to mix things up in a major way when it comes to the set list. And so think about that. That's just a ton of music. You could work for hours, days, even on one song. Well, we're talking about learning close to 60 songs in a matter of a few days. And this is one of those skills that you definitely develop as a professional musician. And that's especially true in the bluegrass world where this idea of filling in for people on sort of the interchangeability of the different instrument roles is a thing. So how do you learn all that music? Well, the reality is that listening actually comprises most of the work, getting the music in your head and often transcribing or learning the chords as a song is playing without your instrument in your hands. That's something that we have all learned how to do, an invaluable skill. Then it's a matter of kind of zoning in on difficult passages, learning melodies. This part will usually go down with the instrument in your hand and kind of putting it all together to understand the music. Now, keeping all this music straight, that can really be a challenge. But again, if you've listened enough and you have that strong reference in your head, then you'd be amazed. You know, you'd be looking at the set list and you'll see something that's completely foreign and then it gets going and you have a lot to fall back on. I remember that's how I felt when I filled in with Railroad Earth years ago when the late, great Andy Gessling was was uh, sick for the first time. I was playing with them and it was the same thing, just tons of music, tons of listening. And with Stickley, our first rehearsal was actually on the day of the first show. So I got the set lists done in advance. We brought stick up to speed on the way we create and understand set lists as a group with our production meeting. I've talked about this before on the podcast. We have a production meeting 90 minutes before every set where we go over everything that we're going to play that night, talk through the transitions, anything that's unique to that night, the flow of the show, etc. Then after some last minute review, boom, hit the stage, 
let it rip and John did amazing again. We were days in, so we, we got through Red Rocks and it went great. He did awesome. We were days into, you know, probably five, six show days into playing with Stickley. And I was pulling songs from way down this list, and he pretty much had it all covered. I was impressed. We definitely benefited from our common bluegrass language, and I think we we pulled out some trad, some traditional material that the Dusters had never even played. And the bluegrass connection helped definitely in that repertoire area, but also in allowing him to drop right into the groove and the feel of the music. I've always said there's no musical education like bluegrass. The rhythmic elements are so strong. The sense of melody is so strong. The concepts of ensemble playing, the roles that the instruments play are so perfect in the way that they fit together. And if you learn bluegrass, you know, you, you learn guitar from Tony Rice, or if you learn what Earl Scruggs did on the banjo, you are headed in the right direction. And bluegrass is also great at ear training. And, and ear training is really the best way to describe that skill that I'm talking about, that thing that professional musicians know how to do, to listen to a song and learn it just by listening to it. I always say that was my most valuable class at the Berklee College of Music was ear training. We'd sit there and the professor would come in and he'd say, okay, here's middle C. He'd play one note and then he'd start to play through these progressions of chords. And little by little, your ear gets used to recognizing the relationships and knowing that, okay, we're, we're on the one chord here and oh, it, it just moved to the four chord, the five chord. And it becomes very second nature, and that act of listening turns into the act of learning. Now, all that said, we really did miss our man Falco, and it was incredible playing with Stickley, but it will never be exactly the same without the core five of us, and we are so excited to head out for the rest of the summer with Falco back on board. Everyone healthy, everyone ready to rip. All right, let's jump ahead now to my interview with Madison Cunningham. I cannot say enough great things about her music. It's tremendous. Give it a listen. Here we go. Well, you'll never see me dying on screen or microscope. Inside the Musician's Brain, and my guest today is a phenomenal songwriter, singer, incredible guitar player, and really starting to make a name for herself, Madison Cunningham. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed listening to a bunch of your your stuff that's on Spotify recently. The music is just so awesome. Congrats. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, you have a full album out, Who Are You Now, that came out in 2019. But I love these, I love these new singles, Hospital and Anywhere. And I believe those, those are both this year, right? Yes, yeah. Anywhere was released back in April and then Hospital came out today. Very cool. Yeah, the, these tracks are really unique and creative, great production, but your sound is just, it's so cool. It's like, to me, sort of like a study in contrast in a way. Like there's really smooth, beautiful sounds in there, but there's also a lot of edge and like the guitar riffs. And of course, it's very hard to categorize genre-wise. Like I, I don't even I don't even think we need to go there because it's something... <laughs> really all its own. And mm. I got to tip my hat to you for that because that's that's hard to do these days. And, you know, the first thing I want to talk about is is kind of how that all came to be. I read up on sort of your origin story with music, but would love to hear from you a little bit more about how and when you started playing and, you know, when your relationship with music really got going. Well, I guess we'll just have to go to the beginning. Um, my, where did it start? I was born in Escondido, California, and then moved to Orange County where I spent the bulk of my uh, childhood uh, in the suburbs at a, in a place called Costa Mesa. And uh, my dad is and was a musician, uh, a guitar player specifically, and he, he played acoustic guitar mainly. And... I think I just really wanted to be exactly like him. Uh, he, he was, I think, the coolest reference that I had in my life of someone who just loved music and devoted his passion and effort um, to music. So I think, I think that was the, the most uh, c- contagious example I had of it at the time. So I, I started probably playing guitar when I was about six or seven. Um, it's probably also worth noting that I was homeschooled and so he, he would kind of give me these chords, um, to, to mess with and kind of get under my fingers. Cause you know, when you're first starting to play guitar, it really hurts (laughs) and it takes a minute to, uh, to get rid of the buzzing and to make, you know, to make sure that the chord feels articulate. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, he would just like like give me a chord a day and then he would leave for work and then I would sit at home kind of working through my blisters and trying to just make the chord sound the way he made it sound. Um, and I was just, I was, I was just so frustrated because I, I couldn't, you know, seven years old and you're playing like a jumbo acoustic Taylor guitar and like your hands are only so big and so strong. And so you're, you're trying to work through, through that problem. Um, and yeah, I think from from there I was I I think I just kept falling deeper in love with the guitar through different examples that kind of came through my life. Um a, a dear friend named Danny Donnelly was one of my favorite guitar players and he he really had an emphasis on playing rather complicated uh things on guitar while singing a top line over it. That sounds like it certainly had an influence on you. It totally did because I I just thought it was I hear the, that a lot yeah. in music. I mean it, I just thought it was the the coolest uh piece of just like like 
showmanship that I had ever seen. Like, because because there was so much existing between his voice and what was happening with his fingers, and I felt like he created like a whole band just between himself cool. and his guitar. So I think watching that from like ten years old to then like um, my my teen years, I think that that subconsciously played a huge role on how I would come to uncover guitar and like my voice in that. Um, but yeah, mainly it was pretty much self-taught and just, I think I had a lot of great teachers by just watching these incredible guitar players that were around me and in my life and kind of really took me under their wing. Um, and Danny was one of them. Um, bass player, producer, extraordinaire Tyler Chester is also like on top of being in, an incredible uh, pianist and producer and bass player is just one of my favorite guitar players and we spent so much time together since I was 15 to 16 years old to now and uh, he, I think he just the, the, the sheer nature of us working on music and just hanging out in a room and playing guitar that, that taught me kind of all I needed to that gave me all the tools that I needed to, to keep chipping away at it I yeah think. yeah it's really interesting and I read in a few interviews that it's not like you had a bunch of Beatles records and you're like I want to learn these songs or right. you know you were exposed to that stuff but not until a little bit later on and I, and I think you guys performed in church when you were young too right yeah exactly so my dad um uh was a worship leader uh growing up he's recently kind of stepped away from that for the time being but um that's uh, again like he very much encouraged me to learn how to sing and play at the same time and all of that was was really kind of found and discovered in within the walls of of that church that I that I grew up in do you think that that was a big part though of shaping your journey with music the fact that though you were around some really influential musicians you weren't necessarily hearing like this classic canon of songs. Like I said, that kind of came a little bit later, but it sounds to me like that's something that really ended up contributing to the immense like level of originality with your music. Would you agree with that? I, I, I would say so because I think there, there was a, a necessary um, level of naivety that I, that I had in in music, because I, I I felt like I was able to come to the creative table without go, without feeling intimidated by like a bunch of towering figures, you know. Yeah, like I, I didn't yeah. I didn't feel like I had to sound like Joni Mitchell, or I didn't sure. have I didn't have to write like Dylan or any of those greats that you could possibly name. And again, they were so informative when they did come into my life because I th I think I was maybe mature enough to to hear them in a different way and to be informed by them in a, and I don't know, in a, in a more mature sense. But I think as, as a kid, I just, I enjoyed music and I didn't feel the need to perform it or to perform. It was all for, for, for pure enjoyment and discovery. And, and I, I think as a kid, when you're exploring and you're in the midst of creating, you're not, you're not thinking, about doing those things. You're not you're not in your head analyzing that you are in that moment creating. You're just lost in whatever yeah. it is that's happening. And so I'm for for that reason I'm I'm thankful for 
kind of having a a sheltered childhood in that way. It's really interesting because there are so many aspects of music that you need to master as a player, as a songwriter, producer, whatever it is. But originality is the thing that is really hard to teach. Maybe even you can't teach that. You know, you can learn these rudiments and you can pick up on different chords, even really unique elements of someone's music. But to find that thing, to have your journey ignite that thing that's unique about you, hmm. sounds to me like that's such a big part of what got you to where you're at. Do you remember when you wrote your first song? <laughs> I think I was probably seven. Oh, was, wow. You got going early. <laughs> yeah, no, um, the, the second that chords made sense to me and I could actually, you know, get through them and play them, I think I, because I also, I, I started on piano before guitar, so I was probably like six or seven when I started piano, and then guitar came second, but songwriting made, made sense to me or was at least a very um, uh, immediate part of my, my journey as like a kid who loved music. And I don't I don't necessarily know why. I think I think I must have as the oldest of five kids, maybe just had a lot to get off my chest. I don't know. <laughs> I had a had a very lovely childhood, so I don't know what I could have possibly had to write about, but it all I don't know. There was just some there was just like this natural like um diary centric mode of of writing for me where I just it all kind of just like worked together. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. My dad was also a songwriter, so I think also maybe it was just pure emulation. <laughs> but you gravitated right away toward, again, sort of on this originality front, just creating your own things. Were you writing music, lyrics, all of that as a seven-year-old? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really, wow. really highly, deeply embarrassing, but I, I, I was. I was writing lyrics and music and... Why is that oh. deeply I think that's deeply awesome that you were doing that at such a young age. <laughs> I mean, I just, you, you say that until you hear it and you're like, ooh, good good thing that you, you uh, made it to where you did today. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, uh, it certainly was, was, was very raw. We'll just say that. Very okay. raw. <laughs> well, there's still an element of raw in your music, which I really dig. Again, like I just hear... I hear these different contrasting sounds, you know, I hear these like edgy kind of gritty riffs and then these amazing kind of soaring, beautiful vocal melodies. It's sort of at the same time has this like dirty raw sound, but also really, really catchy and obviously covers a wide range of, you know, different sounds and genres, mm. bands, but what... What was it like when you did start to discover some of your really fundamental influences? You were obviously a little bit older, but how did that music come to you and and what was that experience like? I mean, it was almost dangerous because it was like giving a kid candy who had only ever had fruit their whole life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like it I just I think I I almost lost a job that I had because the day I graduated high school, I was like delivering cookies for this this business that was starting up in my neighborhood. It was like the first like gluten free kind of cookie business that emerged out of Orange County, and I found my way into that industry and by delivering cookies. 
And yeah, the day I graduated high school, Tyler Chester gave me um, Rubber Soul and Abbey Road. And as the story goes, when I put Abbey Road on, I think Come Together is the first song on that album, right? I'm almost positive. I believe so, yeah. It just, for lack of a better phrase, it just blew my mind. And I, I was driving to my destination and forgot to turn on the AC and melted all the cookies. But again, I just was like, I was on cruise control because I was still just trying to pick up the, the pieces of my brain. And I, I wasn't thinking about <laughs> anything else. Like everything else completely disappeared. So I walked into the to the grocer with these melted cookies and I just like never heard the end of it. I got put into an office and I tried to blame it on the Beatles and she did not take that as an excuse understandably and like it was just it was just again I think it really like opened up my brain and and cracked me open in a way that that I didn't know was was possible and that's what's so sweet about a musical community or just or just like a education of the art that already exists and the history of it is is that it teaches you what you didn't know you needed to know sure. and what you didn't think was was possible and i think few few artists have been that way for me i think joni mitchell's a huge one mm-hmm. um cuz she she was playing in open tunings and before i had heard her i was dabbling in open tunings and writing a lot and then she just completely her her writing and her approach to open tunings just schooled me and i just i, I you know i still haven't recovered and then <laughs> Jeff Buckley, of course. Like I think that was another another uh, I don't know soulmate like artist. Like when I when I heard him, I just thought like this is the this is the music that this is all that matters and yeah. the way that he creates. Like that's what I want to tap into, and um, yeah, I don't know. It was just uh, there, there's certain artists that have come along in my life that have felt like they have said the thing that like my heart yearns to say. And cool. uh, th- those are some examples. Fiona Apple is also another one. Yeah. And I think, I think, like you said, the relate, like, I really believe that the relationship of something that's like a little bit dark or grittier to something that is married to something more beautiful. I think that's a important relationship because that speaks to like the spectrum of, of kind of the human experience. I, I love that. And I actually listened last weekend to Grace. From oh. from start to finish, because Rolling Stone, I don't know if you saw this, Rolling Stone published an article that I think was a a reprinting of kind of Jeff Buckley's story. It really focuses on his drowning and yeah. and how that all went down. But when I was in college, I'll never forget, my good friend Andrew gave me a copy of Grace, and I just had never really heard anything like it. And And, and of course, Joni Mitchell is a great reference because she's just tips the originality scales too. And you just hear things with the way her yeah. guitar and her voice interact. But Buckley is an awesome example of, of that thing that I've sort of been referencing. Like there's this edge and obviously his, his music has a darkness that's very tangible, you know, the lyrics. And of course, just looking at the story of his life, I mean, gone way too soon, but then there's like this amazing sweetness in his voice, you know, totally. and, and it's, it's really, it's really moving. And, you know, I saw somewhere else um, mentioned, I can't remember if it was an interview or what, but Juana Molina as a, as a influence for you, which I love her music. And she's kind of got that too. You know, it's like, there's, 
there's uh, there's like rawness there, but then there's just beauty that sort of like floats on top of it. And again, originality. Like I, I there's no one that I could compare her to mm-hmm. that 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 I I would even say shares similarities. It's like she's just her own her own universe, and she's created that. And she was another artist, like that did that very thing for me, which completely like opened my mind to another way that music could be made. Sure. And I hadn't, and again, she's a, she's a guitar player. So like all, all of that intricate guitar work you hear, she's singing and playing at the same time. And I, so when I was, when I made my first record in 2014, I was like still in high school. Uh, the, the drummer, Aaron Redfield, who, who played on it, just started playing her music. And he was like, I feel like you need to hear this. And I think somehow he knew that it was going to like, I don't know, shape me or like mm-hmm. it was the it was the palette that I needed to hear. And I just I, I've I've been I've been preaching the Juana Molina gospel for like years now. <laughs> oh, she's she's so bad. That album, it's called like Wed 21. Wed 21. It's the Wed, one. Wed 21. Yeah, that that's the one that could turn me on to her. And and wow. Same. Talk about originality. So talk to me about the guitar, because you're a badass guitar player, like the guitar playing. And it's it's a it's a really really spot on combination of a few things. Like first and foremost, it accompanies the song and the voice and brings it to life. Yeah. And yes, it's technical and and there's a lot of stuff that you know it's like you've done your homework, but it's also again just unique and with the open tunings. Like who are you in? You know, when it comes more specifically to guitar. Mm. What are some things that you gravitate toward or some players that you listen to and transcribe? Like, is that part of your music that you work on sort of independently or is it more baked into all the songwriting? Like, how how does all mm. that look for you? Yeah, I mean, as as far as as the, the songwriting goes, I do feel like the, the the guitar has always made sense as the vehicle or the main ingredient or like the overarching like kind of sound. For the, for, for the whole thing mm-hmm. um, which I think took definitely took me a minute to find that because I, I I put out a record with like acoustic guitar and but I think I, I when I put out my debut album who are you now I felt like there was a specific trajectory that I wanted to embark on and I think it, it had to do with making the guitar like the the, cent- the central theme but I think I still wanted that to come second to the songs. So like okay. I wanted to make a signature uh writing style which I again like I don't know if that I found that or not. I think You did. There's there's no way to tell that. <laughs> you, you did, I think. <laughs> Thank you. But you know, I hoping that that can even exist beyond a certain guitar sound, you know. But um who, people who I I heard first that I think I geniusly kind of baked the guitar into the songs and really I think uh figured out how to make the guitar an essential part of the songs was like Blake Mills was was a you Mm -hmm. know an obvious like influence for me uh Ry Cooter oh cool um he he's a big one uh do you know who Adam Levy is at all I don't think I do who's Adam Levy I mean, incredible songwriter, but I think first and foremost, as a guitar player, he he played all over Nora Jones' first record, Come Away. Okay. And he just was playing around L.A. 
um, when, when I kind of was up and around there and he was a major influence on me. Um, cool. Obviously Buckley, Buckley, I feel yeah, like he gets credited that. for his voice, but I don't know if people pay as much attention to like how incredible and innovative his guitar playing was. Mm-hmm. Obviously Wana, like truly those are like some of, yeah. some of my, my heroes that I think have stretched my, my imagination when it came to guitar. Yeah. Awesome. Um, awesome list yeah. of influences. I have to say some, some spectacular artists who just have a really convincing sound, but also a sound that's completely all their own. Yeah. We'll get right back to my interview with Madison Cunningham after this very short break. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street. All right, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm curious to know, so I want to talk a little bit about how the last few years have impacted you because, you know, we've we've had a lot of guests here on, on my podcast who are either mostly like, established artists who have a long-standing career and then the pandemic hits and your story is a little bit different and it feels like when 2020 hit things were really teed up for you and then Mm. just like the rest of us everything got shut down Mm -hmm. and and now you're back with a vengeance and you know you got a new record coming and you've made good on some some big plans that you had in the pipeline before the pandemic hit and, and yeah, I looked at your tour schedule, lots of, you know, amazing shows coming up, Mount Joy, Lake Street Dive, lots of great stuff. But 
how, you know, I, I just, I was struck by that and curious to hear a little bit more from you about what, what that felt like. Cause that must've been tough to feel like you really had momentum and a head of steam and then you got shut down and, and then you have to figure out how to recover from that. So how, how did that feel? How did that play out? Well, I, when the pandemic hit initially, I, I was kind of excited because I think I had, had come and obviously I, I was excited in a naive way because I, I didn't realize what was to come. But I thought, oh, cool, two weeks of vacation. We, we've been really hitting the road hard <laughs> and I'm exhausted. And and obviously we know how it ends. But um, yeah, I think when I when I really look back on it, we really my, my record came out in August of 2019. And then we had those kind of six months to travel with that music. And then a couple months at the beginning of 2020. And then just nothing at all. And I, 2020 was supposed to be a writing cycle year for me. Like that right. was, that was the plan, but there was just a couple things that had happened. And I, I had gotten a random uh, message from Harry Styles asking me to open up for him. And I had a couple other tours. So it just was like, it felt like there was momentum that was suddenly just completely, you know, severed. Because uh, the, the Harry Styles show, for example, that the MSG show that went away. Yeah, it did. Well, like it got rescheduled for 2021, but there was this fear of like, will it will it yeah. come back? And spoiler alert, it did come back and right. we got to do that show and it was very special. But I think I think there was just a lot of me reaching for like, how how am I going to get out of this period? Because now I'm not sure what the what it's going to look like on the other side and what will be left for me. Like, what will I be coming back to? Do I right. have to start from 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 scratch? And I I just I I wrote all the songs that are now on this this record during that period which was just incredibly difficult. Like it was it was one of the hardest year and a half I've I've ever experienced creating. And I think music felt like it didn't feel like a romantic outlet for me anymore. Like it was hmm. this it was this very like difficult like taking the sledgehammer to cement to try and like get to the to the soil um, now, do you do you feel like that was because you felt like you should be had to be writing music and so you just need to get it done or was it more of like a creative personal thing like it just wasn't happening it's probably a marriage of the two because i i i simultaneously had this like job to do right and i have a contract with a label so it's like it, it this has to happen right now and i'll i have all this time off so there's there's that guilt also and then there's just the the reality of being completely severed from your friendships from your musical community and and yeah. everything that kind of keeps that machine running and inspired and all those you know sure. all of those factors were just gone so i think i had to just kind of come from a different place and also it was really good for me like i think it kind of it i kind of had to become an adult about it and be like it's not always going to be easy and it's okay if it's hard like what are you why are you so afraid of of this feeling hard um uh I think I think the worst thing is is not knowing what is up or down creatively and not knowing if you're if what you're doing is good. And I think I had 
a, a lot of months of that. And then there was just a, there was a switch where I think maybe just personal stuff amounted to me being able to be a little bit more honest. I don't know. I think I was cracked open. I, I lost my, my grandmother. Yeah, I and, read about that. Yeah, and I don't, just, just the, the blow and the unexpected nature of that just kind of, I don't know, all bets were off. Nothing felt precious anymore. And then everything felt incredibly precious at the same time. It was this sure. really weird um, kind of paradigm of like, nothing matters, but everything matters. Yeah. <laughs> because time is all literally all we have, and we don't have much of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of started this like very honest journey of, of me kind of making a promise to myself that I wouldn't, I wouldn't withhold whatever it was that that needed to be said, even if it, if it felt ugly or felt too honest or whatever, yeah. you know. So you, you sounds like you came into some major perspective. Yeah. And and all of a sudden things kind of open up. And yeah. and is that when you wrote the songs for this upcoming album? Yeah, yes and no. The, the I feel like the first song that um, really made the cut was the one about my grandma called Life According to Rachel. Uh, and then everything else kind of came after that. Uh, okay. Hospital came shortly after and and some and, and the rest of the tunes, honestly. But um, it is funny how that works. It's like you can't ever rush the songwriting process. You can't ever tell it what to do. You just you're kind of you just have to be the you just kind of have to be a slave to it in a way. <laughs> So break that down for us one step more. That's really interesting. So when you say that, do you mean you just got to show up every day and put in the time versus like waiting for inspiration to strike? I mean, I don't think there's any other way. I think I think the the waiting for the inspiration to strike is kind of a pipe dream. I don't think that that for me at least that doesn't happen as as much as I wish that it did. And if it did, I would just be I would just be taking <laughs> taking work off all the time and just waiting. <laughs> that's a that's a very common theme I hear so much from songwriters and you know we all know this but it it's just takes work and yeah. you know what you said a second ago too is really interesting getting over this hump of feeling like okay this is hard right now you know yeah. and it's not always going to be easy. So when you're in a period of you know call it writer's block or whatever is that something that you feel like you're carrying around with you all day? Or is it more something that manifests when you pick up the guitar and you go to write a song? Is it something you're kind of like worried about? Like, how does that feel to you? Yeah, I mean, it's writer's block is for me is a mixture of procrastination. Number one, a mixture of fear. And also sometimes just just not knowing where to start. Because there's so many ways that you could go with writing a song, and mm -hmm. and um, so it can be a little bit of paralysis as well. But again, like my my friend Mike Viola always says, he's like, I believe personally that writer's block is self inflicted and that it's not real. And and actually, just by him saying mm. that, that completely for whatever reason, changed my expect, uh, perspective and helped me to just, I don't know, write again. Because I was, if indeed it is, you know, of, of your own doing, then 
I don't know, it kind of allows you to be like, well, I'm just going to kind of throw words on the page and just see what happens. Like, what what am I holding back? What yeah. What's so precious that I can't jump into this? Yeah, it kind of removes some of those more self-imposed elements of it. Like you say, like procrastination. You know, you can just sit down and hammer something out, even if it's complete bullshit, you know? Totally. Like, just to get moving towards something else it's like warming up you have to you have to stretch you have to let yourself become malleable again um and i i think there's a huge we like we like to call it the moodling process which is like you just you arrive and you might just kind of like sit around and nothing will happen but even that was worth it you just you just setting your intentions wait did you say moodling Moodling. Like a combination of mood and noodling. Exactly. I like that. I like that. And it's, it kind of I is get like, that. it's a little bit nomadic. Like you're not, there's no purpose but to set intention and to say, here I am, come what may, rain or sun, or sunshine, whatever it is, I'm here and I'm going to like set, set my focus to where it needs to be. And yeah. again, it might just be a stupid ass song that you just have to get out of the way. <laughs> I have well, plenty of those. Plenty. <laughs> but it's it's such a, to me, that's always something, like, for example, when I hear back from people who listen, you know, to these conversations, they're always surprised to hear the amount of sometimes, yeah, like the moodling part, you know, where you just have to show up. They think that every piece of music is some divine inspiration and they don't realize that. And of course, you know, this this is like, can be the most annoying thing ever that, Usually the people who are most talented also work the hardest by far, you know, and it's like, you know, guys like Bela Fleck and Chris Thiele. It's like, okay, well, you obviously have all the tools, but they also just show up and make that happen. And it's not it's not just magic every time. You know, there's a great, great lesson in that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also very easy to to fantasize about artists who make great music and thinking to yourself like oh they're just it's just easy for them and really that's that that line of thinking is just one fat excuse to not to not put in the work yourself yeah um because no one is no one is i think we're all for me a lot of my songs have been born out of divine frustration (laughs) like Hmm. and and just trying to like take what was an initial easy idea to completion like all the steps that have to happen in between the easiest part which is an idea yeah and finishing that idea are there can be just a lot of you know like hitting your head against the wall because you're just like i just don't know what what this what how to finish this or where to go and again i think that's why musical community is so important because sometimes the answers are just like simpler than you think and maybe a fellow fellow artist could could point it out you know, in a day, whereas yeah. sometimes we, I, I do like to write alone, though I, I, that's kind of my happy place, and because I don't have to justify my initial instincts, I can just kind of let it, let it happen, and then correct later if it needs to be corrected, but. So you have all these cool kind of tools in your arsenal, the guitar stuff, and obviously you're singing the songwriting, and, and, and you know, odd time signatures, and just like really cool voicings, like there's all these different things that end up in the final product. But when it comes to the songwriting process, 
Do you feel like you're pretty formulaic in terms of which one of those pieces you chip away at first? Or could it be anything that leads you down a certain road, a lyric, a chord or whatever? It, it definitely could be anything. Like okay. I don't, I, I can't necessarily predict what it'll be that will, that will, um, kind of kick off a song. But I, I do think that there's an accidental formula that happens, which is guitar usually has to happen first. Okay. Like something, something there needs to be sparked in order for me to find ultimate interest but that's not again like I, I say that but that's not fully true because there has been songs that have have come lyrically first and then I figure out the the guitar pieces later and I do think it's important to serve the song first so I, I try to not just turn to guitar because sometimes that that can be like a you know a cyclical thing a rut that I can find myself in okay okay this is a random question, but I'm so curious. On Anywhere, what what is the instrument playing that cool, like, creepy melody? You know, once not the guitar riff at the top, but it, it almost sounds like a steel drum or like an electric guitar with a bunch of effects or something. What oh, is that? the da, 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 any day now. A piano. Oh, okay. A piano with a um, God, was it was it a felt piano? Yeah, I think it was a felt piano with like a delay, like effect that was put on afterwards. And so then cool. Some distortion, I think. <laughs> so, like that melody, did did you write that, or is that something like where you're teaming up with your producer in the studio? Do you have all that stuff mapped out before the sessions go down? Uh, not necessarily before. I, I will do some mapping out beforehand, but that line was, yeah, I wrote that. And it's a sick little melody. Thank you. <laughs> it's so Appreciate cool. Appreciate it. And it was also one of those things, I sometimes I stumble on melodies by accident by just kind of like, if I have an idea of the kind of instrument I want to hear and that it needs kind of uh, a place or a purpose, then then I'll figure the melody from, from that point. Okay, okay. So talk to me about this new album, Revealer, coming September of this year. Yeah. So what's, what's new? What's different? I know you, I read that thematically that you definitely were inspired by your grandmother and the loss of your grandmother, but what, you know, what, what is this album all about to you? it's to me it it feels like a rediscovering of my self and my interests um because I was so blocked creatively I feel like this this record was me kind of kind of coming back to the foundation of why I love music and and why I love songwriting and I think that that happens to be because songwriting is such a beautiful mode of processing very, very hard things. And for a second, it can like take you out of those realities and into, and into a space that you, you want to be in for a while. And um, I, again, it wasn't an easy process for me to make it, but these songs are so enjoyable to play and to hear back that I feel so lucky that that it turned out that way because it very well could have not 
been that way, but I think because I had, I don't know, a good amount of wise people around me who encouraged me to just keep digging at it and, and going back to the drawing board and trying again. And, and I, I, I wanted this record to not hide any of the, any of the things that I was thinking or dealing with. And, um, I think it also kind of just deals with a lot of my, uh, my battles with anxiety and a little bit of depression and, uh, and just also just, it kind of, it's a little bit more autobiographical than it, than it, I have been in the past. And do you feel like giving a voice to some of those things that are hard for you is a way of, I don't know what the right word is, but just dealing with them, getting past them? I don't know if, if, if it's helped me get past them. I think it's, it's, it's helped me face them. Okay. And I, I, I think I've realized that there, there are things like grief and like anxiety and like depression that just are bound to stay. Okay. And I'm bound to, to experience more of, but at least for me, in, in being honest that they exist, it helps me t- to work through them, but I don't think I'll ever get past them. It just, it, it gets me comfortable with their residence in my life. <laughs> well, that's probably a great way to look at it because that is life. And yeah. there is no, you know, I think the more we we feel like we're in control, that can be a, a dangerous road, you know. And a little a little bit of the letting go is oftentimes what helps us find a little bit more peace. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And I I do think that if you believe that you are completely in control, that that the reality of those those things forementioned grief anxiety et cetera et cetera hit harder it's 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 harder to to grapple with those things if you're not at least surrendered to the fact that they exist and they yeah. are a part of life and um again i do not i think it's worth mentioning do not consider myself to be an expert on any one of these things i do feel like talking about them is is me not wanting to preach about those subjects. I think they go deep and they can exist on a spectrum and everyone has their own, you know, version of them and experience. But I think, I think the admittance that they exist in my life was important for me to convey and in order to, to create an honest, uh, reflection in, in the music. Yeah. Well, and that honesty is what resonates with people and gives a voice to whatever they're feeling. And that's, like one of the most powerful things in music, you know, and totally. and I'm sure that that's something that, you know, you're, you're able to create for the people who are listening, which, which is awesome. I commend you on that. Thank you. So what about the, the recording process for Revealer? Do you rehearse this stuff heavily before you go into the studio or do you like to keep it really fresh? And how does the tracking process go down for you? It was so sporadic this time, um, again, because it was um, in the middle of trying to navigate how to do things in the middle of COVID. So so each song had a different shelf life before bringing them into the studio, and I recorded them all kind of separately. Maybe in December of 2021 was when I recorded the most songs at once, but ultimately ultimately i would kind of record one song at a time okay um 
And that's kind of the way I wanted to do it. I kind of wanted to write a song and then be able to go in and record it and kind of really focus on it. Because the last record was the complete opposite, which was working all the songs up um, parts and bass parts and all the things beforehand so that when we went into the studio, we could like get one live take of it. Sure. So yeah, we did that. We finished that record in two weeks. And this one was like literally made over the course of a year and a half, which I don't know that I'll I'll ever do again because I like things to just be like intentionally done in a certain amount of time and then being able to be free from it and Mm -hmm. move on. But it was a great learning lesson for me because I really wanted to try that that style of of recording. Um, And I worked with three different producers this time, which was which was crazy. It was so fun and challenging for me um, because I really was out of my out of my comfort zone. I didn't really... And that was very important to, to, to be there, I think. So uh, what do you mean by that? Out of your, Was that because you feel like these producers were pushing you into new zones or things that were just going on and you're like, what, what, is that, what does that feeling come from? I mean, I think each, each producer naturally brings their own thing to the table and I, I had always just worked with Tyler Chester and we we did do m- most of the songs on the record together but I do feel like it was cool to experience um, you know just different different approaches and Tucker Martin was an, one oh, of them cool. and then um, awesome. and then Mike Elizondo okay. and so they each just brought something that challenged me to the table and uh, I guess that's what I mean by out of your comfort zone yeah okay yeah exactly Exactly. so and 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 just to be clear these the singles hospital anywhere these are going to be on this upcoming record right yes exactly Exactly. cannot wait to check it out i'm i'm so excited i'm i'm a big new fan and and i gotta ask before we wrap up what's it like to be on stage at madison square garden (laughs) opening for harry styles like seriously what is that like i feel like that feel this is going to be a really weird example, but just bear with me. What it felt like to me, and this is also me not knowing what this feels like, but from how it's been described, is like being like on an operation table and being completely awake while they're operating on you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's how it felt. It was like that level of scariness, but real consciousness and clarity. And again, I think I think the the operation table metaphor runs short because it wasn't at all painful. It was like the most enlightening and wonderful experience. And the audience was like, so kind to us and like actually very much paid attention to every moment and every, every note. And that just really impacted me. I think that really had to say something about the way that Harry kind of invites guests into his orbit and I think he really really prepared the stage for us in a way that was like these are my guests pay attention and that just was so life-changing and yeah I'll never forget it do you know how he discovered your stuff I am not I think it was through one of his band mates I think they showed him a video during rehearsal one of his rehearsals and then and then I guess he was walking on the street listening to my record and then he got robbed by like six dudes or something. <laughs> and then shortly after that, he reached out and the rest is history. 
Yeah, super wild. I, I really, really can't stress enough how much I didn't expect that record to make it to that to that world. So very cool. Really cool. Well, you deserve it. So you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of shows coming up. Yeah, you're about to hit the road pretty hard. And I saw, like I said earlier, a bunch of shows with Mount Joy, which is awesome. Yeah. And um, our friends Lake Street Dive. Love those guys. We've played with them many times and then you but you also have a bunch of shows that are your own headlining shows coming up right yes yeah it's a it's a wonderful mixture of the two um yeah there's i think the bulk of the touring kind of happens in, from september to october okay. which are headlining shows and then i think we're going to be touring a little more in november but okay. that's yet to be yet to be announced well, I got to say, I'm a huge fan. Congrats on all your well-deserved success. And I hope we get to meet up and hang out one of these days. Not sure it. where, but I'm sure it'll happen one of these days. Look for the, look for the string dusters when, you're, when you see you know, the, the festival lineups you're on or whatever. And uh, yes. let's find yes. the time to cross paths. But thank you so much, Madison, for joining me on the podcast today. And best of luck with everything you got coming up. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Really appreciate it. You're so welcome. That's a wrap on episode 29. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Huge thanks to our amazing guest today, Madison Cunningham. Check her out. Her new album, Revealer, is on the way this September. A huge shout out to our sponsors this season. Orvis is your go-to for all your outdoor needs. ArtistWorks, your go-to for online music learning. We are also brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. If you dig what you're hearing, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. You can't imagine how much that helps. We've got one more episode to go in Season 3, and if everything goes according to plan, that will air right here in three weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. <laughs>